Okay, we're live. Good evening, everyone. Broadcasting live March 16th, 13th, March 13th. Today's quote is on three types of thought. Tayome bhikkave kusalavitaka. Ananda Karana. There are these three right, that's the second part. The first part is Tayome Bikave Apusalavitaka Andakarana. There are these three unwholesome thoughts that lead to blindness. Achakku karana that lead to not seeing. Anyana karana that do not lead to knowledge. Panya nirodhika that lead to the cessation of wisdom. Vigata pakkika. that are on the side of vexation lead to suffering. Anibbana sangvatanika that conduce, do not conduce to Nibbana. And he goes on to talk what are these three kamavitaka, sensual thoughts of sensuality. Vyapadavitaka, thoughts of ill will. And vihingsavitaka, which is thoughts of oppressing others or abusing others. of abuse. Vihingsa is interesting because you think it would be with Vyapada, but it seems to be more related to delusion. Vihingsa is oppressing others or being arrogant or conceited. It's more to do with delusion. But the point of this, the interesting point of this quote, this first part anyway, uh, there's, there's more to talk about with the second part, but uh, it is the importance of thought. Uh, just of this quote in general, that it brings up, before we get into the details of these types of good thoughts and bad thoughts, we have to understand this is a crucial distinction between Buddhism and, and, and say Hinduism or Brahmanism of the time which held that it was our actions that were most important and to some extent this is how we're more inclined to think in modern times 
that it's our actions or our physical circumstances that are most important. If we're suffering, if we have problems in our life, they can be fixed by changing our situation. All we have to do is just run away from our problems, change the conditions, external conditions, do something to fix the problem, and all will be well. That the solution to our problems and the way to progress is in the physical. When in fact that's not the it's not the, in, in Buddhism from the Buddha. It was this unique, this new idea. Or, you no, know, I guess at least maybe not new, but uh, pointed concept. Where the Buddha denounced any concern for the physical situation that the answer to our problems the answer to question of how to be free from suffering lies not in the state of our body but in the state of our minds not in the state of the world around us but in our thoughts and so this it's not really what he's saying in this quote but this quote is within in the context of the importance of thought. It's our thoughts that lead to Nibbana. Uh, we don't often uh, give credit, the credit that it's due to the importance of thoughts. They think, well, if you think, you know, you think you want to kill someone or hurt someone, well, you're not actually doing it, right? So how is the thought more more destructive than actually going out and killing or hurting someone? But the, the this misses the whole point that the, the it's the power of the thought that leads us to kill, to hurt, to harm, to do anything that if the thought wasn't powerful enough to create uh, it's it's that the power is that the thought wasn't powerful enough powerful enough to create the action the action of killing is meaningless it's the power of the thought and the power of the thoughts involved so uh, during the time of killing after the time after having killed the power of one's thoughts That's why uh, bad karma can be done even after the fact. Good karma as well. If you give something to someone, if you're kind to someone, it's actually good karma when you think of it after the thought, after the fact. You think of the good deed that you did and you feel happy about it and reassured about it. That in and of itself is good karma. Before you do the deed, while you're doing the deed, after you're doing the deed. All of that is the karma. The karma is not actually the deed. And so that's the context here. I mean, that's an important point to keep in mind that this isn't 
just some side issue. Our thoughts are the most important aspect of our lives. It's our thoughts that shape who we are. There's our thoughts that shape what we do. Our thoughts inform our speech and our action. And when they don't, they're meaningless. So if I uh, say, if I'm talking about precepts and I say, I'm talking about the first precept and I say, so you should kill at any, every opportunity you have. And then I say, oh, I mean, you should never kill. So I, if I misspeak, then you, can, you couldn't say that was bad speech because it was a, um, a slip, right? Or if I'm, if someone is driving a car and they accidentally hit, hit a dog or hit a person or something, the act is not, the act is not karmically potent. And no one would think it was really. Uh, sometimes the person who hit the, who hit the dog or the animal or human or whatever, would feel bad about it, but no one else would blame them if they weren't being negligent. <laughs> if you slip and fall and, 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 and squash a bug or something, you're not guilty of murder. But if you purposely step on a bug, then you're guilty of murder because of the intention. So this is the context here. This, so there are three kinds of thoughts that are that blind us, that affect our lives, that keep us from being free. Another point is how this says anibana sangvatanika. The important point is these keep us from being free. We think we're we often think we're trapped because of our physical situation. Yeah. We're trapped in, in trapped by money, trapped by family, trapped by society, or trapped by all the, by the world around us. But in fact, we are not trapped by any of those things. We're only trapped by our minds. Now, of course, uh, there are the, the body is useful in finding freedom. For example, if you didn't have the opportunity to, if you didn't have the knowledge, or, or if you didn't have a computer or so on, you wouldn't be able to listen to this without physical support. So actually getting to see the Buddha or getting to hear the Buddha's teaching or the teaching of someone following the Buddha, that kind of thing, requires physical support. But in fact, uh, the, 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 it's the knowledge and the understanding that frees us. It's our thoughts that keep us tied. And this is crucial because we think other things are keeping us tied down. So things out of our control, we think. You know, we think, uh, I can't meditate, I don't have enough time. We think, I can't practice meditation because I have this or that mental illness or uh, I'm just too distracted uh, I'm this or I'm that reasons why we're trapped but in fact it's only us that are trapping ourselves and this is the awesomeness of the Dhamma 
so that any moment we can begin to free ourselves. We can work to free ourselves anytime, anywhere. There is no limit. There is no... Uh, <coughs> there is no... What's the word? No, in, in, no, nothing in, inhibiting us. Nothing can possibly get between us and the truth. Uh, at any moment we have this opportunity. And we can start at any moment. So we start by looking at our thoughts. We start usually by looking at the body, but only because again, uh, the body is a is a, a tool that allows us to kind of like sneaking up on an animal in the jungle. You you can't run out. You can't run around the forest looking for deer. The hunter has to stay where they know the deer are going to come. So they you, they stay by the water and they watch the water. If someone came and saw them, they think they were hunting water, but they're not. They're staying by the water because that's where the deer comes. And the mind is the same. If you stay with the foot, you stay with the stomach, as we do when walking or sitting, the mind will come there as well. And you'll be able to see the mind. So you'll see thoughts of sensuality, you'll see thoughts of ill will, you'll see thoughts of oppression. And you'll start to learn about these things because... The ordinary way of dealing with them is to follow them, to take them as the uh, agent, as the tool. I'm angry at you, so I'll attack you. I want something, so I'll go get it. We use the wanting. Wanting means uh, needing or means should. You know? I want something, therefore... I should get it. I don't like something, therefore I should change it. And this is the wrong way of going about it. This is actually reinforcing these thoughts. This is what ties us to the world. When you want something, the way to, be for, to solve that is to stop wanting. The problem is the wanting, not the not getting. When you dislike something, the problem is the disliking. It's not the thing that you dislike. When you feel righteous about something, it should be like this, shouldn't be like that. That's the problem. And it's not to us to try to change things. It's to us to learn to stop clinging, stop obsessing. So that's in regards to the three thoughts that are that get us stuck. Now I'm interested in the other three because they're not the ones I'd normally think of. Nekama vitaka, well that's the first one. Nekama is renunciation, so that's the opposite of kama vitaka. Kama vitaka is, uh, is thoughts of sensuality, of seeing good sights, hearing good sounds, smelling nice smells, tasting nice tastes and feeling nice physical feelings. We want all of those things, right? 
So nekamma is letting go of that. Nekamma. Nekamma seems horrible, really. When you think about it, it means giving up all the things that uh, you desire, all the things that you seek pleasure in. We would say all the things that make us happy. What's left, right? What's left once you give those things up? It's made worse by the fact that when you start to give them up, you go into withdrawal, like a drug addict. When you give up entertainment, when you give up uh, romance and sensuality, the whole, your whole being will, will will re reject it, will, will uh, revolt against it because of going into withdrawal. So in the beginning meditation, can, this kind of meditation can be quite unpleasant. And it's hard. This is why the Dhamma is hard to teach. It's hard to understand. It's hard for a drug addict to give up their drugs hard for their mind to get around the fact that they're actually going to be happier when they're no longer uh, under the power of this fever, this delusion of finding happiness in drugs. You know, this is what it's like for all of us. We're intoxicated thinking that we're going to find happiness and intellectually we know it's not bringing us happiness. You can watch and say, man, I'm addicted to this and that. And intellectually, it's easy to see, but emotionally, very hard to see. The thing about true happiness is you can't cling to it. That's a problem. Um, <laughs> because you, you, you attain it, and your mind doesn't cling to it. Your mind doesn't say, yes, that's what I want, because it's not about wanting. And so you still want the things that don't bring you happiness, because they're, they're associated with wanting. Wanting will always be associated with the things that don't bring you happiness the things that induce more wanting, that are related to wanting, that are related to the addiction cycle. Happiness is not something you can want, and so it actually is quite difficult to find true happiness. It's something that, in a sense, you have to work at. It's not what we think of that. We think happiness is this relaxed state where you don't work, where you're you're free from things like pain and 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 uh, unpleasantness, but that's not real happiness. It's because it's dependent on a certain state that is impermanent. And because we can't control our situation, the unpleasantness is going to come back. So trying to run away from it, trying to escape it, is never going to be the answer. But when you nikkama, when you give up the desire for good things, uh, the happiness comes. But it's something you have to work at. Because you feel happy, but you still want the things that don't make you happy. Well, that's funny. Until eventually the mind will incline. Uh, but it, once the mind inclines, once the mind sees clearly, really, and that's the thing, is you start to see clearly that the things that you're clinging to don't bring you happiness, then your mind will incline away from them. 
but you really have to see that. You have to look at the desire, and this is where mindfulness comes in. You have to be objective about it, study it. Don't run away from it or feel bad or guilty because you want this or want that. Study the wanting, objectively. It takes time, but if you're objective about it, you start to see that it's really suffering. And that gives you confidence, and that inclines you in the direction of Nikama. Which is good because that leads to freedom and happiness. And the second one, okay, so he's got these translations wrong, which is why I didn't understand it. What was the second one? Love. Yeah, it's not love, it's not the translation. I get where he's going, but which means non-ill will. They're out there in the negative, which he doesn't like, so he's translating them in the positive as love. But love is an occasional. Love isn't something that you have to that you need. Love isn't a requirement. It's the freedom, it's the objectivity really. And objectivity is really mostly negative in the sense of not having this, not having that. So nekama means renunciation, giving up desires, but apayapada means giving up ill will. So for the things that we don't like, people don't like to hear like this, you know, it's why is Buddhism just none of this, none of that? Where's the positive? And so he wants to translate it as love. That's what the translator does. It's not necessary. It's just important to explain non-ill will. Why is it? Because objectivity is free. Reality is free. There's no, there's no intrinsic reason to dislike something. When you dislike a person, when you dislike an experience, when you dislike a thought. <laughs> That's the problem. It's the excess, the baggage. We carry around baggage. This is the, and why, why it has to all be negative. It's about getting rid of the baggage. When your thoughts are free from unnecessary baggage, nothing good comes from judging, from disliking. It just makes you unhappy. The, the suffering itself, the problem itself doesn't make When a person comes to you, I don't know what the person says to you. They start yelling at you, it's just sound. If they hit you, it's just feeling. Even if you feel great physical pain, it's just pain. It's not bad. It's actually not bad. The bad is all in our reaction. You can be free from those, you're free from suffering. The problem is we react to everything. So giving up anger, ill will, ananda karno doesn't make you blind. Chakku karno leads to vision. Chakku is mean eye. Leads to the eye, but not the physical eye. It leads to spiritual vision. Jnana karno leads to knowledge. Panya udiko, it leads to the increase of wisdom. Avighata pakiko, it's not on the side of it's not related to vexation or suffering. Nibbana sangvatanika, It's conducive to nibbana, to freedom. And the third one is avihingsa, which he translates again as 
helping. Yeah, which is not awihingsa is not doesn't mean helping. It again just is the negative, not being arrogant, not being conceited, not being oppressive to others. That's how I interpret it, because otherwise it's too similar to Vyapada. I'm pretty sure it means relating to delusion, arrogance, that kind of thing. When you oppress others or are, are judgmental, condescending, conceited, arrogant, self-righteous, all of this, inflated, this kind of thing. So giving that up, giving up our arrogance and our conceit and our views and our judgments and all of these things, they don't help us. You know, beliefs don't help us. Views don't help us. None of this is useful. You say, I believe this, well, I believe that. Well, my view is this. is Meaningless, garbage. Our views are meaningless. The only thing that's important is the truth. Which, I guess, the idea when we say, I believe this, is, is the idea that we think it's true. Uh, and for many of us, that's as far as we get. We, we never are able to get beyond thinking that something's true. And so we think that, that's why we start saying, I believe this. And, because we think belief is as far as you can get which in fact it's not. Knowledge is possible, and that's what the Buddha says here. There are things that lead to knowledge. When you give up your views, when you give up your conceits and your arrogance and all of this, and when you, um, when you look at reality, well, when you look at reality, you become very humble because reality kind of bites. Specifically, the reality of our minds is kind of messed up. Our minds are all crazy and messed up and really ugly to look at. It's very humbling to practice meditation. For most of us, for anyone who has arrogance, it's very humbling because you see how awful we can be in our minds. You see how useless we are. You know, Before you come to meditate, you're kind of proud of yourself. Everyone has some pride of themselves. And if they're not proud of themselves, they they have an idea of what they want to be, you know, and they're aiming for. And they get upset at other people who are not like that. They judge other people who are not, maybe not how they are, but how they want to be. Just as they judge themselves because they're not what they want to be, that kind of thing. But it's all conceit. And when you come and meditate, man, you really realize how useless we are. Our minds are just all messed up. We're not the awesome person we thought we are, and we can't be the awesome person we want to be because our minds are just a mess. Which is, I guess, kind of sounds kind of depressing, but it's actually quite uplifting because you don't have to get conceited anymore. And it unties all the knots. Knots are interesting things. It's a good analogy for the mind. Because if you look inside, you think, oh man, it's all messed up. What am I going to do? But in the end, a knot is an illusion. A knot doesn't exist, right? You can't say, well, here's a knot. It's not. It's, it's rope, right? And if you untie the rope, you can show that the knot was not real. It's just a state. 
and you get the mind all tied up in knots, in the end it's still all just mind. And so you untie yourself, basically. You, uh, by seeing how awful you are, you become less awful, is the point. It's like by seeing the knots, by untying the knots, you, the, you show that the knot was never really there, so you didn't ever untie anything, is the point. It's kind of a paradox. In the same way the mind is a paradox, in the sense of you, you untie yourself, you, 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 you become disgusted with yourself, which actually makes you less disgusting. You become fed up with the way your mind is, which actually stops you, you know, stops you obsessing about the mind, and so you become more calm and more natural, more, more peaceful, more wise, more, you know. You're, you're more wise when you start seeing how stupid you are, that kind of thing. It's, it's quite, uh, quite humbling. And of course, who doesn't want to be humble, right? Wouldn't we all like to think that we are so, how great we are because of how humble we are? Yeah. Meditation is very real. There's no running away. You have to deal with so much unpleasantness. And you're finally not running away from it. Anyway, very brief quote, but I ended up talking quite a bit. So I'm going to kind of end there and talk about this. Three unpleasant, un, unuseful, un, unhelpful thoughts, problematic thoughts, based on greed, anger, and delusion. And the three opposites. When you free yourself from that kind of baggage and you just see things as they are, they have to be phrased negatively. Not this, not this, and not this. Because it's the, that's the key to enlightenment. It's not love, it's not helpfulness, it's not those bad translations. It is really giving up the baggage. We can be who we are. We can be natural. It's who we think we are. We think we're just sitting there. We, we think we're just, when we walk, we just walk, but we don't. When we walk, we're all over the place. When we sit, we're all, we're not here, we're not with reality. We can't handle reality of our minds, of our bodies. We can't take it. We can't take reality. And so we're not here. We have too much baggage. When we let go of the baggage, then we're here. That's the work that we do. So that's the Dhamma for tonight. Post the hangout. You're welcome to come on and add questions. Anybody has any questions? You can go. <coughs> I have a new meditator here. I can show you. It's just Louis. Louis? He just came today, you know. And Robin just left today. So we actually have room, you know. I told Vanessa we didn't have room until the 19th, and we do have room. So maybe I should contact her. She could come early. Hi, Tom. Hello, Bonte. So I've had uh, a problem this week with my health, and I know you have too recently. Mm. I had about 48 hours where I pretty much coughed nonstop. Mm -hmm. And um, it affected me quite a bit in trying to meditate. So I would like uh, 
your observation on how you deal with that when you're going through that process and it just wouldn't stop coughing. Mm -hmm. You're asking my technical advice, if you will. Uh, the sickness can be really great at, um, in, in terms of meditative development. You, you get to see very strong reactions and you can feel even stronger when you don't react. How powerful it is to be objective about something that you never thought you'd be able to be objective about. So being mindful of the feelings, it's just the same practice. The problem is we don't believe it's possible. We don't think of it. You would think, come on, I'm, you know, I, I can't meditate under this condition, right? But that's the problem. Not the, there's no special practice. It's just we stop practicing because we, we, we can't fathom. You know, it's like when you're in great pain, you can't fathom just sitting there saying pain. Come on, you got to move, you got to do something. But actually... You can become enlightened if you really are determined to focus on the pain. Thank you. You're welcome. That helps. Yeah, sickness, excellent time to meditate. Problem is which we, we, we tend to have difficulty appreciating that. It's, it's habit, you know, when something strongly negative comes, of course, we react strongly negative. I, I, I get attached to being so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I think was what was happening. So I'm not over it yet. So I'll try to incorporate that. Good. Good luck. All right, I guess that's all for the questions. Uh, if you're wondering where this, how this all works, some people just see this on YouTube and don't have a clue what we're talking about, how we're getting into the Hangout. This, all this, all of what, most of what I do is centered around meditation.sirimangalo.org. So you have to go to that site and log in or not. And, and I'm posting a link to the Hangout there which means you can actually join the Hangout by clicking on that link. And that's how you, answer, how you ask questions. I'm just getting so much, con I get so much contact from so many places that I think it's fair to limit, uh, to, to limit the means by which people can uh, contact. You know, I was thinking about, I always, I've come back many times to this movie, uh, what was it? King of American Shaolin, I think. Something like that, the title. And it was a movie I watched in the 80s back when I, you know, living on, living in the sticks. I went over to my friend's house and he said, hey, let's watch this movie, King of American. And uh, it's a pretty crappy movie, I think. But uh, the one part that I remember was, before they let him into the Shaolin Monastery, he had, they wouldn't let him in because he was a foreigner. 
And so then he found out from a villager that once there was a monk who they wouldn't let in. And he sat under the, uh, in the courtyard for days and he just sat there and finally they let him in. Eventually they let him in. So he did that. This American kid does that. And eventually finds out that it's the, the current abbot who was that man. So who, who the, the first one who sat in the courtyard until they let him in. Anyway, that, that part of it's kind of poetic. But I like going back to that because it makes me think of how, how we expect everything to be so easy and so accessible. And we devalue it as a result. And so I don't mind making things a little bit hard to access. And I think if you get frustrated and turn away because, uh, because I'm not available 24 hours a day and I'm not answering your emails, and I don't, I don't mind that so much because it, it, it weeds out. You know, it, I mean, it, it, sure, it can have the unintended side effect of turning people away, but... It's not not impressed by this. I think the, the alternative is problematic, making things too accessible. And I, I think provide you know making things impossible to access that's a problem. But making it difficult is I think very important actually, because people value it, you value it. And it tests you. So if you get frustrated and turn away, well, frustration got in your way. And it weeds out people who are overly frustrated. It also gives me time to do my own meditation and do my own studying. Because, I, you know, people do actually contact me 24 hours a day sometimes. Not so good. But mostly I think... I think of this, um, you know, having to be patient. And computers, we have to be very patient with computers. I know some people are having technical difficulty. Uh, computers can teach you patience because it's easy to get frustrated by them. Unfortunately, a big problem with computers is you have to learn so much, right? You have to learn how this works, how that. And it's like, why do I want this? But you can just think, when I started meditating, it was like, there would, there would have been no way. How could I have found this meditation? I had to travel overseas. I had to you know, save up money for a plane ticket to Thailand. And, and it was only luck. You know, there are so many places in Thailand that I could have gone that, would, in fact, did go to, where there was really nothing. You go there and... I was recently talking to a man, uh, I think he's watching these broadcasts, and he's now he's in St. Catharines, which is close by. But he was saying, he went to Chiang Mai, which was where I was. And I said, oh, did you, well, that's neat. Did you go to any of the meditation centers? And he said, well, I went to some of the temples. I, I can't remember, I think the word he used was temples or wats or whatever. Uh, so he went, he said, I went to Doi Sutep, I went to Cheri Luang, and I met a, you know, a, a spiritually enlightened monk, he said, Chedi Luang, I think. 
but uh, I mean, I did all that as well and, and didn't find, just at the last moment, I was actually on my way to China. Uh, just happened to find a monastery in a guidebook, this little blurb about a monastery and headed over there. And even when I got there, I almost didn't make it. I tell this story often about how I walked into the monastery and asked the novices, Haktini Dai Mai, can I rest here? Can I stay here? Like, no, no, you have to go to the hotel down the road. They had the clue what I was saying. But then I asked a monk, I think, and finally it got through that I actually was interested in meditating. I was walking out. I was walking into the sunset and uh, got to the gate almost. Then this Bangladeshi monk called me back as he spoke English and had some idea what I wanted but very close to missing the opportunity. It's not easy to, to find the right opportunity. You know, you have to be bold. You have to uh, make the effort and be patient. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like a good screenplay, Monte. Oh, my life would make an interesting screenplay, I think. I'm sure. About the part where I had a, there was a monk who took a broomstick to me and was ready to beat me over the head with the stick. He was winding up. I don't know if he would have actually. I probably he would have, if I had continued to irk him. But I looked at him and I said, "Really, you're going to hit me with a broomstick?" I just turned and walked away. I gave up. And then he said to me, "He said to me." Uh, a very, very rude Thai. Thai, is, Thai has actually levels of speech. So there are words that you use when you just want to insult someone. Instead of saying you, you use a form of you that's actually originally didn't mean a bad thing, but it came to be used as horrible slang. It's what you use when you want to insult. And he started using these insulting words to me and saying, you weren't born here. Your father wasn't born here. Why don't you go back to where your father lives? To your father's, uh, to your your father's country and I turned to him I turned around and I said my father is in Jomtong he sent me here to start this monastery <laughs> it was like this awesome comeback I had for him because at Jomtong I'm referring to my teacher who is my spiritual father my father's in and then I went to and then I walked all the way to the to the, uh, the head monk of the district and told him what had happened and said I was leaving. And he said I should, I should not be so hasty and that I had had it. You know, this was, the, this was the tail end of like a monk with a gun, uh, an old monk. Uh, what did the old monk do? Oh, he, he who went around telling village people that I had three wives because women were coming to meditate and uh, he, he said I was in her room late at night alone which wasn't true I, I was very careful about that so but I did go into a room with a, a, a boy who was my witness and so he goes around telling people that I'm going late at night into this woman's room anyway a story after story, and this was the tale. And finally, they said, "This monastery, no problem. You're going to do fine." And then this monk with a stick. I'm like, "Come on!" So I went to Wat Rampung. Uh, 
which is a very big medit. It's where Ajahn Tong used to live, and it's a very well-known meditation. It's probably the meditation center in Chiang Mai. Really nice place. The abbot's really nice, and so I stayed there for a month. And uh, it was funny because it was there. There was so much politics and and stuff going on, and I was just kind of kind of out of it because like this isn't my problem, and I just stayed in my kuti and. And it was neat because they were fighting over me because I was kind of like a new power figure or something. So people were bringing me food. And so I just stayed in my kuti and ate their food and actually started teaching. And and, and had a quite, a, quite a nice month. Wait a second. I think I've got... The, no, no, this is totally out of order. That was earlier on. That was after I left that place in the first place because these nuns stuck their finger in my face and said, I want to know what kind of monk you are. Just yelling at me. That was, that was funny because I'm telling this all out of order. I've got such stories to tell. And these are the stories I don't tell because these people are still alive. But a little bit of it is, is okay, probably. Um, so I was with this man from Denmark. No, not Denmark. Uh, Holland. Who is actually uh, of night... night uh, Suriname, Suriname origin. His family is from Suriname. He, I think he grew up in Suriname, actually. Um, and he said to me, "Come on, we got to go talk to these nuns. You know, they're they're not angry." I said, "They are angry." He said, "No, no, they're not angry. We got to go talk to them. Come on, we got to sort this out." I said, "Okay, but they are angry." And he said, "No, no, no. I just talked to them. They're actually quite." And as soon as we got there, they. Boom! Stuck their finger and started yelling at me, like really yelling, actually yelling, you know, red in the face, yelling. <laughs> and I turned to him and I said, "They're angry." <laughs> and so then I, I told them I was leaving, going to find another place. And anyway, long story after story after story, and then finally there was the monk with the broomstick, and I think that was the end. That was where I said, where I said no. I think that was the last straw when I decided to come back to Canada. Didn't have much luck in Thailand. <laughs> A lot of good stories though. I'm not trying to say I was, you know, it's not me the protagonist, everybody else the antagonist. I was messing up as well. I mean mainly messing up not being able to not being able to cope with the Thai system, you know, not touching money, which is a big no-no because it's sad. That part is sad, really. That part I stick by. Um, but not being able to, not being able to, you know, show respect. And there was an expectation as a foreigner that I should always be treat my think of myself as a guest, as a visitor. And so there's a lot, you have to be, um, you have to say good things about the Thai society all the time. And you have to be, um, you have to follow the orders of the elder monks and that kind of thing. I mean, I mean, I mean social mistakes of not being able to play the political game, which I don't know, I don't know if I ever could. Maybe a failing of 
not being able to play the political game. I didn't like having to bribe. Didn't like the. I think the, in the end, a big part was having to bribe monks, having to bribe lay people. Bribery is a big part of the society. I don't want to talk bad about Thailand. There's some really good people. Some really good people in Thailand. I've met some wonderful people there. But uh, if you ask me where I'd like to live, Sri Lanka, far nicer place. As a monk, for sure. Living in Sri Lanka is just awesome. Besides the leeches and the snakes and the scorpions and the malaria and or no the dengue, um, the the lightning strikes. We almost got hit by lightning several times, and, and our buildings got hit by lightning several times. You could feel it in the floors sometimes. If you, if you, you couldn't touch the concrete floor because, remember the old monk there, we could, he couldn't speak English, I couldn't sing single, and he pointed to the, the, car, the little mat, and he said, you have to stand on this. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> Sri Lanka is interesting. There are, there are apparently wild pigs that will that will get you with their tasks. I mean, everything in Sri Lanka is deadly. It's kind of like Australia in that way. Except the spiders. Big spiders that are apparently not poisonous or not dangerous. Never been afraid of spiders. Never really been afraid of, of animals like that. Snakes, you know, they have to be wary. I was bitten by a poisonous snake in Sri Lanka. But a wonderful place, wonderful country, um, in many ways. I mean, of course, every place has their problems. There's no such thing as the perfect place. It's not about finding a perfect place. <coughs> Hi, Robin. You're home. I assume you're home. Where are you? You're not home. Yeah, where are you? Buffalo, New York. You what? Do I have audio? I'm in Buffalo, New York. Oh, Buffalo, New York. You crossed in the border Buffalo. already? Yes, we just crossed the border. And here, my phone says 8:49, and the wall clock says 8:49. Is it really 8:49, or is it 9:49? No. 9:49. Okay, good. That means I have an hour to wait. Thank Buffalo. you. Maybe Buffalo is in a time warp. They don't do. It seems to be because the wall clock and my phone have adjusted to 8:49. It's the strangest thing. So. Huh. That is. But strange. as long as you say 9:49, then I'm good with that. I think the America changes their time at the same time we do, don't they? Yes. Yes, we do. Yes. Yeah, uh, only Arizona, I think, doesn't change the time, but everywhere Arizona. else does. Yeah, Arizona doesn't change the time at all. I was just reading a, uh, an article that says there are more traffic accidents tomorrow. Traffic accidents go up tomorrow. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll probably see. We're, statistics show that tomorrow traffic accidents will go up uh, because of, ostensibly, because of daylight savings time. Because we lose an hour's sleep, most people lose an hour's sleep. Uh, you know, it, it messes with your system. There's no reason to have it. Anyway, 
I don't know if that's such a Buddhist thing to say because we have to adapt, but I guess the Buddhist lesson you could get out of that is humans are crazy. We do crazy things. And our reasons for doing things are all messed up. It's not about which system of government you have or who wins. It's it's about the state of mind. So you always have to take everything with a grain of salt. I mean, even Bernie Sanders, this guy who I just think is just awesome, he's not really awesome. I mean, he would he would go to war if he had to, and and he believes in you know. I, I'm sure he's not. Um, perfect is what I'm trying to say, and he probably doesn't meditate, so his his clarity of mind is going to be muddled by his views and, and opinions. But for the most part, he he's he's got this very you know this kindness and this desire to help under everything. I mean, he seems very fake now. It's he seems like he's faking it up to try and because he has to play the part, and I get that, but. Um, it, it doesn't take away from the fact that at the end of the day when he finally, you know, he's so tired as well because working so hard, going here, going there, and, and, and so you just end up repeating the same things. And I, I, I get that as well. But underneath, uh, I see that he is kind and he cares. It's not, uh, his views and his opinions are not bad ones. Um... But haven't uh, changed in many, many years. No, yeah, that's the other thing. He's consistent and he's always been fighting to help people who need it. So um, I can't endorse and I can't like work for the Bernie Sanders campaign, but I certainly encourage everyone out there to, to actually to take a look at this guy. Um, but what I wanted to say about that is that it's in the end it's not the it's not the political system, it's it's the mind state. Uh, I mean, which which is why Bernie Sanders makes it interesting for a Buddhist point of view thing, but um, I mean, more important is all of us. And society doesn't, one of the things he says as well is that society doesn't change from the top on down. It's not the president who makes the country change. It's from the bottom, change, he said, he said this, change has always come from the bottom on up, that's how it's come. I totally agree with that. I mean, we interpret that from a Buddhist point of view. The goodness of a country, the happiness of a, the happiness of the world, it's not something that comes from having the right political system or you know, getting the right president or that kind of thing. It's what comes from all of us. Um, oh, there was a really good. We watched. We had a meeting today at uh, Hamilton Interfaith Peace Group. The board met today. Just we meet in people's living rooms. It's kind of nice, really nice group of people. Um, and uh, we watched a video on Dodd, Michael Dodd, TED Talk, D A W D. I bet someone here has seen his talk. He talks about he's Christian, but he talks about God being reality and how we have to respect reality. And he talks about evidence, evidence being his his gospel or something. I mean, it's it's really quite palatable from a Buddhist point of view, for the most part. Um, and he says when we don't listen, pay attention to God, God's word. But what he means, what he, he he qualifies it every time. He says, meaning if we don't pay attention to reality, 
uh, will be punished. And I mean that's really true. Reality will punish reality. If you don't, if you're out of line with reality, it's going to hit you in the hit you in the face or slap you in the slap smacked in the butt. What's the saying? I don't know. I'm getting it hit hard. That's how karma works. I mean, and he's he's mainly interested in climate change because we're. Christians, a lot of Christians are ignoring the evidence, and it's really, I mean, as a Christian that much must be frustrating to him. Apparently 41% of Americans, and we were arguing this because he said something like 41% of Americans believe there's no point in worrying about the future because the end of the world is coming. Mm -hmm. End times the rapture, and we were saying forty-one percent. It can't be forty-one percent of Americans. Maybe forty-one percent of Christians or something. But I don't know. It's probably some ridiculous high, ridiculously high number of people. Another thing about Bernie Sanders is he's mentioned Buddhists. Buddhists, like uh, what was he talking? He was saying, um, I don't know. I just like listening. He said something about. Oh, because there was a question about religion. What was his religion? And he said, whether it's Christians or Jews or Muslims or Buddhists, we were the fourth in his list. That was pretty. Cool. That's that's pretty aware. Well, in America, we have religious freedom as long as it's the one that you believe in. I think. <laughs> if you stray. If you stray from the norm, I guess, uh, mm. then it gets called into question. Okay. Yeah, one thing was interesting um, in this talk by Michael Dodd is he said, he said the problem is people are becoming atheists. You know what we're seeing because he said because Christianity or religion is not interested in in science kids are leaving religion in droves and he said they're even becoming atheists like as though that was just a horrific horrific thing and so I was sitting there and I knew actually everybody else in the group was probably not an atheist but you know in a sense what he's talking about this guy was talking about is very much atheistic but it's kind of interesting how he he, ta he talks about reality as being religious being spiritual and in the sense of, um, you know, not objectifying nature, which is, I think, fairly Buddhist, in the sense of not objectifying, say, animals, for example, um, in the sense of seeing, seeing ourselves as a part, of rea a part of nature. I think that's very Buddhist. Um, uh, instead of humans versus nature. So we talk about natural and artificial, and we talk about um, you know, the human world and the natural world, the environment. But we are part of the environment, is I guess the point. I think that's fairly Buddhist, is not having this dichotomy. Yeah, if I may, I, I've had that discussion many times over the years of people separate humans from nature and I don't see how that's possible 
I mean, we're a part of nature. And uh, so if this extinction that's going on is man-made and not natural, I, I don't agree with that. If it is an extinction, I think it's natural. We're part of the natural world. Mm -hmm. For sure. But on the other hand, um, it's not inevitable. Just because we're part of nature doesn't mean we're a part of a machine that is inexorably heading towards one direction. Because on the other hand, it's all about us. It's all about the individual. We each have our own universe, which is quite quite empowering. I'm the most important person in my universe. You are the most important person in your universe. Be the most important person in the universe. I think it's quite empowering. It turns the whole universe into your playground, which it really is. You can do what you want. You know, there are rules, but it's your game. You're the star of the show. Uh, and, and in that sense, religion has always had a bad rap. And I think Buddhism, to be honest, would probably get a bad rap from environmentalists because we really don't care about the environment. Well, who cares? Let it all go, you know, not exactly, but it's not the prime focus because it's not the end. So, okay, you save the environment. Now what? Well, what big deal? universe is going to, you know, it is moving inexorably towards extinction. The, the earth is going to burn to a crisp eventually. There's no avoiding that. Whether we go to Mars, is it, you know, it's... At least Sorry? Maybe we could at least say that the Buddhist... Maybe we could at least say that the Buddhist lifestyle is a little gentler on the earth. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think that's the point. I don't, I mean, we're not... We're not being Buddhist in order to save the environment, is really, I guess. No, just a byproduct. But you could say to someone who criticizes, you could say, well, come on, you know, you think Buddhists are going to destroy, a Buddhist lifestyle is going to be bad on the environment? You don't realize that being Buddhist is going to, it makes, so in that sense, it kind of makes the issue moot, or it's not important to focus on the environment. It's just like, well, yeah, at least it's not important to focus on the environment because, once you give up greed, consumerism ends and overconsumption, over taxing our resources. I mean, like the Dalai Lama said, what's the problem with overpopulation? Well, people should just become monks. <laughs> we need more monks. You know, he's talking about China, right? They talk about overpopulation, too many people. Well, we need more monks in the world. People always saying, well, if everyone became a monk, you know, how would the human race continue? And looking at it wrong, the human race is doing just fine. What we need is more monks. We're okay, we'll see what happens. Um, someone did contact me recently by email. Remember after last night we asked about a steward? Right after that, someone did contact me about becoming a steward. Too many emails. 
I'm not answering them all. My inbox has like a hundred emails in it. I've got emails from like 2014 that I still am supposed to answer. It's still in my inbox. There's one email from 2014 that I intend to answer someday. I, I don't want to be rude, Monte, but I need to slip away, so thank you very much. Okay, yeah, I'm probably going to slip away as well. Good night. Okay, good night. Good night, everybody. Good night, Robin. Safe travels. Thank you, Bante. Good night. Good night.